Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. Today's episode is part one of a chat I had with Kara Malitsky Sanchez of Toronto, Ontario's Blue Dog Picked. So now you come from an artistic family and you've been acting since, you know, the age of like five or six or something like that. And, you know, formed Blue Dog Picked it in, uh, at 15. So I'm curious, uh, how did being in show business and, and being in an artistic family kind of uh, mature you quicker than most uh, musically? Right. That's a great question. Well, I uh, was scooped up in third grade by this choir school in Toronto, the St. Michael's Choir School. They went around to all the um, second grade classes and picked two kids that, you know, so showed some sort of musical affinity and then brought them to this Hogwarts style uh, <laughs> situation where you you were tested and drilled and probed. And <laughs> and eventually I, I got brought in there. So I, I shifted from living in the suburbs, a, a perfectly normal life, bike riding in the summers, you know, that kind of thing, to taking a subway downtown to uh, right where the Eaton Center is huh. uh, for the next six or seven years, which, of course completely urbanized me and the things that you see down on Queen and Young, uh, you know, when you're eight, nine, ten years old in a little uniform, um, <laughs> definitely expose you to a different side of life. Um, and then in the meantime, we were there learning 20th century composition and Gregorian chants and and all this other stuff. And then in the in the evenings, I would actually go um, and work at Young People's Theater and uh, do musical theater stuff. Um, so I had all of these different vectors going on. Um, and my mom, when I grew up was involved in doing a lot of experimental theater. She, she did Hispanic work. She's Ecuadorian. So she did, you know, really interesting, um, experimental Latin theater basically. And so we would have rehearsals in the house and they would build sets and put on costumes which all became a part of Blue Dog Picked later. You know, we would build sets, we would dress up, we would have puppets around you know, the stage. And <laughs> and so you can kind of see how, you know, that confluence of influences became that. Was it an easy sell to the other members of the band, um, adding that kind of theatrical element to the music and the performance? Yeah, another good question. I, well, the origin of Blue Dog Picked is such that I was composing piano songs on my own as a kid, and uh, because I was in theater, I was meeting a lot of musical directors and invariably hiring them to produce demos for me so I could one day submit these demos mm -hmm. to this high-tower record industry that existed. Um, and I remember that feeling. You would buy these books of how to break into the music industry, and they'd mm -hmm. have these indexes in the back of all these people that you should write a letter to. Um, and I was of course terror. I mean, it seemed like the most impossibly high tower ever, uh, William 10 and Elliot Lefko and all these names <laughs> that you had to typewrite a letter to. Um, so I was making these demos and then the artistic director at young people's theater, Peter Moss, who later went on to be, you know, head chorus, uh, that did all sorts of like animated series and so on. But he, he, plucked me out of one of the, the theater shows I was doing, probably Jacob Tutu and the Hooded Fang. 
and uh, asked me to come and try out on this TV pilot that he was making. I was 14 years old and we met nine other kids and it was kind of like this camp where five of the kids were gonna be selected and five of them were gonna go home. And then the five that were chosen would do this pilot for a show about musicians trying to make it as a mm -hmm. band. And uh, that's where I met a couple of interesting people. One of them was my friend Paul Popovich, uh, and one of them was my friend Keith White. And Keith did get into the show, and so did Joanna Schellenberg. And eventually Keith and Joanna became founding members of what would become Blue Dog Picked. Hmm. Uh, Keith was on a show called Degrassi High, which a lot of people know about. And through him, I met the whole Degrassi clan. And in the early days, they would come over to my parents' basement and there'd be a lot of smoking <laughs> and <laughs> um, drinking and band playing. And, um, and the other school that sort of came into the picture was Etobicoke School of the Arts, where um, my sister was going to school. And I, you know, and she was in class with people like Kevin Drew from a band called that later would be called Broken Social oh, Team. Wow. Yeah. Um, and another person in that class was, uh, I think she was a year ahead of them, Emily Haynes, who then huh. went on to form a band called Metric. Wow. So there was this like cluster of kids. And, and at the time, Blue Dog Picked was like, besides Emily, who kind of had her own little acoustic thing going, Blue Dog Picked was the only like real life band out there that was playing the downtown clubs and a lot of those ESA kids would come out and a lot of the Degrassi kids would come out. And so there was this really eclectic, uh, it was kind of like the audience was even more beautiful than the band. <laughs> so the other band members, you know, and Danny um, Kovacevic, Kovacevic uh, <laughs> who was our incredible guitar player. He was the second guitar player. Um, the first one was Pete Devlin. But he came from Etobicoke School of the Arts and really was really to this day is probably the best guitar player I've personally ever worked with or met. Huh. So, yeah, that's how the early days came. And so those guys kind of knew, of, you know, they were just part of this whole crazy racket that was going on. And we all collectively sort of goosed each other up to 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 push the, you know, the envelope on how we dressed and, and the kind of songs that we played. and. We really, really always tried to defy categorization or to get pigeonholed. So that was part of the game, actually. Now, coming from that uh, eclectic world that you described, both as a youngster, like down Queen Street, and now as a teenager with uh, some of the acting community and musicians you've gotten to know at that age, um, I would think that would turn you on to a whole different world of music that maybe somebody else like myself, it would have been at 15. So I'm curious, uh, what kind of quote-unquote alternative Canadian bands kind of inf influenced uh, the Blue Dog Pick direction musically? So, wow, if I go all the way back and I think about what was going on, I remember the first real show we played was Talent Night at St. Mike's Choir. Hmm. And it was a bit of a shock to our teachers, you know, to see <laughs> us in these like wearing pentagrams and black capes and whatever <laughs> we were doing just to shock people. I think Pete was wearing a tie-dye shirt just to make sure we all matched. <laughs> um, and then shortly after, we played at Michael Power, which was a far, far bigger show. I remember feeling like there must have been a thousand people in that audience. 
and word had already spread about this blue dog picked band. Um, it was adorable, but we, so we made a poster and in our, our little program notes, we said we were influenced by Jane's addiction, Pixies, Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd, um, which was kind of like late eighties, early nineties. That's what, what, what it was. I mean, it was Jane's and Pixies and the end of U2's rattle and hum era. There was no Radiohead. There was no PJ Harvey. It was this kind of really, really amazing new sort of alternative that was coming. And it still, I think, sits in its own universe. I don't, you know, you could look at Faith No More and kind of see how it was aligned with Jane's Addiction and that whole L.A. scene. And 20 years later, I would kind of meet all of those people at once and (laughs) see how that was interconnected. But anyways, to your question, so we moved from the the high school battle of the bands type thing. And I said, I want to play downtown. And we hadn't really done that. So uh, there was this one club called the Marquee on East Queen Street. I don't even know. I think it might have been a pay to play kind of thing where, you know, you better sell 20 tickets or you owe us 100 bucks kind of mm-hmm. thing. Whatever it was, we ended up <laughs> in this basement uh, where they probably served shoddy prime rib and cheap <laughs> beer and in between some hair band and some funk band and um that was our debut and then we graduated up to stratinger's which was the the sort of drinking hole a couple doors down from that and to this day it sort of feels like a mad max coliseum because it's like the, the audience is sort of in the round behind into the sides of the stage and oh. you feel very self-conscious so um, who was playing at that time? I mean, that was that was early, early days. I don't even think there was an Alanis Morissette yet. There was no real Bare Naked Ladies. It was kind of like a cross between hair metal and country and folk. And then we went into this strange period that was maybe adjacent to like Spirit of the West, where people started bringing accordions into the picture. <laughs> Um, and there was a lot of kind of jig stuff, um, sort of post Stomp and Tom. So this is like, I'm talking like 1991 at this point. By 92 and 93, things started to get a little more interesting. And CFNY was a really, really cool radio station. And you had Danny Elwell and um, Chris Shepard. And they were playing really, really interesting and eclectic music. I was never like big into the Chris Shepard stuff. Chris Shepard coming to you live with my kind of (laughs) faux British accent playing all the wild and alternative hits. But it was still important to hear it because eventually that introduced us to the whole like Manchester sound and like, and all the kind of techno stuff. And that was mixing up with the more hardcore, hard rock, punk stuff. And so we were kind of a mix of that. And yeah, that that's kind of what it was. But I would say by early 92, you were seeing bands like Head and Project Nine and maybe Acid Test. Mm-hmm. And Acid Test was a cool like hybrid band. They were doing kind of a cross between rock and electro stuff. 
And CFNY started to really like them and push that. Daughters of Eve, prepare to tremble. I was super obsessed at that time with Now Magazine, which was the weekly rag. And just to get Blue Dog Pick's name in any listing and any page was my obsession, just to know that we were out there with the real big bands like Hopping Penguins or, I don't know, the Wild Strawberries. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what was around us. But I can, I can identify 
the point where we really transformed. We had, I'd become kind of frustrated. You know, we were not getting allowed into the real big clubs. We were just sort of playing like the the C circuit, and nobody was taking. I mean, we were 15 years old. Um, we went to Eastern Sound, and I spent some of my acting money to record an album in two days. Huh. Um, I think we smoked an entire carton of cigarettes, and 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 by the end of the album, I was completely hoarse because we just sort of did it in a linear front to back fashion. Huh. But now we had a professional cassette, and it was you know selling at Sam the Record Man on Young Street, and the the kids from the schools were going and buying it, and so we were on the indie chart um, that was in Now Magazine from Sam the Record Man. <laughs> which was like basically the end of my life. That was like my dream come true. I could be <laughs> done. But I wanted to prove that we could play the big clubs. So we we transitioned over to the Opera House. And the Opera House was a, a, a dream. Like you had these like IntelliBeam lights and this huge stage and a balcony and these awesome looking bars. And they would have, again, Battle of the Band Nights. But the thing that was cool was in between those nights, these huge acts would come in and you would sometimes go to play and you'd see all their hardware with like the stenciled names of the bands and realize like the night before, you know, some crazy monster album that you'd read about in Spin Magazine had just been on that same stage. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, Athena who booked it, she really liked us a lot. Footnote, 20 years later, when I went back to see her, she didn't remember me. <laughs> but at the time, she really, really liked us. And she gave us really big opportunities and let us headline all the time and just go completely nuts with developing and learning our stage show. Um, and I think that she actually invited us to open for Pearl Jam uh, before they were really, really Pearl Jam. Like they were wow. doing their Toronto debut. They had a new record out called Ten. And she wanted us to be the opening act. And in between that Monday and that Friday when that was going to happen, they had sold so many tickets that their um, promoter decided to move them over to the Masonic Temple. Huh. And we, you know, we didn't get carried along with that gig. Um, I think within a week of that, we did play at the Opera House. And I think that the night... or or two nights before us, another band came into town, hot off their release, um, which was called Nevermind. <laughs> and uh, I don't think at that point that Nirvana had sold more than 100,000 units. Uh -huh. I think it was just starting up. So I was getting frustrated because I could feel that we were on the edge of something, but we weren't really getting there. And our numbers started dropping and I was like, well, why aren't people coming to our show? And they would say, cause man, it's like a school night and like the opera house is on the other side of the city. So I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to book a show in the middle of Sunday at 3 PM. And it's going to be in the easiest place to go, which is the Cameron house right at Queen and Spadina. Now you have no excuses. <laughs> And so that's what we did. And we played a show called The Lullaby Cabaret, which was all new songs that they'd never heard before. This kind of weird mix of like cabaret and jazz and like 
acoustic folky. It was bizarre. I don't know where we were at that stage, <laughs> but we completely filled it. It was huh. absolutely packed with Etobicoke School of the Arts kids and Queen Street kids and Degrassi kids and theater people. And it just made this big old stink. But we promptly um, finished our drinks, packed up our stuff, and headed over to this other buzz band that was playing back at our old opera house, Alma Mater, called Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> wow. So I get into that show, which is like just the buzziest. I mean, it was a feeling... It was a feeling like a UFO was suddenly passing overhead and nobody had warned us it was coming. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know why I'm here or who buzzed me to this, but I'm in the doors probably because Athena just slid me through. And that shit changed my life. Like to see them in 90, whatever it was, 92, 93, like raw, raw. And this was before they'd even put out their self-titled album. Wow. Another fun fact, I ended up having that rehearsal space that they used to record that album on Cole Street 20 years later oh, no for realizing that was where they recorded it. Anyway, wow. I saw that show and Zach, you know, in the middle of bomb track, like, <laughs> falls or, or or like one of those songs and he falls into the audience and then just gets pushed right up feet first into a crucifix pose wow. and then just falls backwards into the crowd and i mean tom morello's there i mean they're the the rhythm section and i was just like whoa and after that blue dog picked fully re-anchored its rhythm section to just be like rage against the machine <laughs> another thing we were listening to a lot was ween you know, Ween were just these really bizarre, pot-smoking, brilliant kind of drum machine and pr like Prince-style guitar solo weirdos. And on Blue Dog Picks off-peak hours, we had this fake band called the Funk Pill Overdose. <laughs> and we would just get really weird. And so it was a combination of the really weird Ween-type psychedelic stuff and rage against the machine so that's where we were by the time that we were 93 94 and that i think is the sound that most people would would kind of align with us now um being so young early on in the career of blue dog picked um was it difficult the age factor to get gigs knowing that a lot of the you know bars of certain mandates for alcohol and whatnot yeah, uh, there was, I mean, we had to sometimes play all ages shows just so our own audience could come. Hmm. Uh, interestingly, we didn't have to be of age to play non all ages clubs. Huh. Uh, but the bartenders watched us like hawks to make sure we weren't, <laughs> you know, sneaking drinks. I even think that sometimes we played for booze and we were 15 years old, but I, I might be like crossing the streams and, you know, mashing <laughs> timelines together. I do remember when the Jays won the World Series, though, we had a gig on Queen Street. Um, I don't remember the bar. It might have been called Exile. In any case, we were playing, and the stage was facing inward in this really skinny little bar, and there was no front window, so our butts were, like, facing the street. And they were paying us in jugs of beer. Uh, but we I was doing it because I just wanted to be playing like right on Queen Street and always have our name 
in the in the musical center of the universe, which was Queen and Spadina. And then the Jays are playing the World Series. And, you know, you don't know if they're going to win. You don't know if it's going to go to another game. But they win right in the middle of our set. Huh. And the street is just completely filled with people. Like every nook and cranny and window and lamppost has a person on it. People are standing on cars. They're honking. And my band is like set up and plugged in and playing to that crazy street wow. right then and there. And that was amazing. Yeah, the energy must have been insane. Just palpable. It was insane. You never forget that kind of a thing for the rest of your life. And it galvanizes you. It makes you a different band, you know? Like, you're not just some sort of meek acoustic player in the back corner apologetically playing your new material <laughs> at that point you're like this is the fucking energy right here this is all that has to ever be so anyway um the problem of age was there and i i think blue dog picked ended by the time i was 19 or 20 so it was always an underage band really i didn't realize that uh you were that young when you guys uh ended interesting well the end which i very rarely ever talked about publicly was because a few things happened my grandfather died i was really heartbroken by it i got invited i got invited by the producer of the show catwalk that i ended up doing at 17 to go to la and record a version of love shack where he asked me to get my friend Nev Campbell, who was on that show, to sing on it. And she had said, well, it's a long story, really long story. But anyways, we had a bet going and Blue Dog picked that whoever met Drew Barrymore first would either, <laughs> I don't even remember the bet. It had something <laughs> to do with meeting Drew Barrymore because she was on the cover of all the magazines at that point. And, um, it just turned out that Neb was working on a film with Drew called Scary Movie, which would later be called Scream. Huh. And I said, I'm coming to see you because I want to win this bet. Huh. And so I went down there and uh, I also wanted Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys to do the Fred Schneider part in this cover of Love Shack <laughs> for this Sinbad movie for Disney. And halfway through, he he sort of ha gets cold feet. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, what am I doing? <laughs> and I'm already at Chicago tracks waiting for him. I've taken a, a plane from New York where the band was at that point touring. And uh, the producer is on his way down to Miami for the Super Bowl because he's repping um, Gloria Estefan um, and the Miami Sound Machine. So he stops in Chicago and goes into another room with Jello. And 15 minutes later, they come back out and Jello has agreed to do it. <laughs> so we record him and then I go to L.A. And anyways, all those things happened. And it was right around sort of the end. It was 95 or 6. Um, we were approached at a North by Northeast show by two major record labels. I think they were Mercury and Maverick Records. Oh, wow. Both who wanted to sign us, I didn't even know really what Mercury or Maverick were. I just, I even remember getting the business cards and looking at them. Like, I think it was Mike Taylor over at Maverick and, and thinking, 
is this guy legit? Like, is this really a, a major label? Like, why isn't this EMI <laughs> or MCA or something? But the band went into this whole kind of death spiral about, you know, how do we split it and what are the song rights and all this other stuff. And we could, we just couldn't, we couldn't get everything together in time. I had to go to LA and by the time the smoke had cleared, it was kind of like we were all sort of going in our different directions. Hmm. But to, you know, to this day, like that band was my life. I gave it absolutely everything. And I, and I, I really, really, I really loved it. And I think that if we had just made it through that obstacle, by the time we finished, Radiohead was just starting to turn into something. And the reason I bring those two up is because we were doing that kind of stuff, this kind of melodic, operatic, punk, rock, glam thing. And even the and even sort of that weird mesh of like electronica invading, you know, that that OK computer and um, all their later records became. So I think we would have had a pretty good frequency to ride on. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. But life just sort of got into the, into the picture and then we turned in, you know, 20 years old and things changed. Just to put a button on part of that story, um, did you get Nev Campbell to do the vocals on Love Shack? And if so, um, how was she as a singer and, uh, who else did you get to play on the track? Yes, she did. I am. I actually hired uh, Great Bob Scott from the Look People to be the drummer, huh. and I basically hired the best people I could because I was freaking out. I was like, "What am I going to do?" <laughs> they, we didn't have DAWs in that time. You didn't have, you know, Pro Tools at home. You had maybe something called Session Eight or like a Diaxis Studer, which was a two-track digital audio editor. But you couldn't just like whip up samples whenever you wanted. So, um, yeah, and not only did I get Bob Scott to play the drums, but I got um, Richard Underhill from the Shuffle Demons to do the horn arrangements for it. Hmm. It was a pretty killer track. I don't even know if I have it, but Nev, she's, a, she's a, a good singer. You know, she has a very pure sort of sweet voice. Hmm. Um, and so we pushed her to kind of give it a little bit of growl. And uh, <laughs> yeah, she did fine. I think the other note about that is that Jello refused to do like the sweet saccharine straight up version of Love Shack for Disney. So he ended up, I think I, I convinced him to try it a different way. And he said, what if I'm like the Unabomber in my Love Shack? <laughs> and so he changed all the lyrics to sound like he was the Unabomber writing a manifesto. Yeah. Well, 
can uh, dial back a little bit to uh, the early '90s. Um, can you talk a little bit, a little bit about um, starting Constant Change Music and uh, starting like an independent record label, and what was the motivation behind doing that? That's a that's actually a really good question because I. Why would I have started a record label at that time? I think it was just because I didn't really want to wait for somebody to give me permission <laughs> to put out records. Nice. Um, so I, you know, I, the first thing that we did was we recorded the picture album on cassette at Eastern. And you're right. Like as a 14 year old, why would I be that audacious? But I think it's because <laughs> I already had like 10 years in the film and theater industry and I just didn't have any fear really of people, you know, being more important or, or being gatekeepers. And, but of course I had no understanding about distribution or the economics of it or anything. It was just pure bravado. Um, so we, we put out that first cassette and then the next thing I really wanted to do was I, I was seeing like incredible stuff downtown in Toronto. And I, I think this is the reason that we're talking and I really dig your, all of your feeds and stuff because you, you know, you kind of pay tribute and and shine a light on this really incredible era of music that has been deeply undercovered. Mm. Um, you know, Johnny Dovercourt came out with a book called Any Night of the Week mm -hmm. just this past year. But besides that, there really wasn't anything that covered that era of indie and alt bands. Um, on the Queen Strip, and even just that whole corridor between like Peterborough, Guelph, you know, um, Kitchener, um, Ottawa, Kingston. There were so many amazing bands going on then. There's actually um, a one more book that I, I consider like kind of uh, it's necessary. I mean, I consult it, you know, every week. It's called Have Not Been the Same. Oh, cool. I haven't heard of it yet. And it's covers all of Canada, but there's a lot of um, what you're referring to. Yeah, I'll send you the link to it, man, and uh, you might dig it. Oh, for sure. I mean, I hope that we can cover some of that material here because I know I have a very um, particular path that took me through that time. And I saw things that definitely did not get picked up in the books. Um, cool. And so, yeah, what was your question? Your question was... The record label. Yeah, starting the motivation behind starting Constant Change, like an indie record label in the early 90s. Now, was that the goal just to put out your records, or were you then fielding submissions from other bands? Oh, yeah. So, like I was saying, I was up and down Queen Street all the time, and I just lived for that, for mm -hmm. that scene. Like, there was Kensington Market, where a bunch of fucking goofs had their little hangout, and then there was kind of like these weird painterly artists and there was Trinity Square, uh, sorry, Trinity Bellwoods um, and all of these little pockets, these little communities. Like there was like kind of the Ossington scene and then you kind of went up to Clinton's over at Bloor and um, Bathurst area and each one had their little hangouts. I remember a band called Lowest of the Low would play between Sneaky D's and the Cabana Room at the Spadina Hotel. <laughs> Um, and they were just, I mean, it was so simple and basic. I could never believe how basic the guitar solos were, but their songs got stuck in your head, like the mm -hmm. most insidious earworm and would never leave. Um, and there was a band that would open for them called Dig Circus. Huh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, do you remember Dig Circus? <laughs> I do, but um, I was just laughing because 
just the other day, I, I uh, did a tweet where the question was, name a song, a song lyric that references another band. And a lot of people's answers was a lowest of the low song that references Dig Circus. Oh my God, that's so freaky. Like, it's freaky to me that everybody knows what lowest of the low is because they were just the acoustic dudes that played at the Spadina Hotel. Anyways, Dig Circus and them were inseparable. Like, every show LOTL played, Dig Circus opened for. And they definitely had an influence on us in those earlier days, pre-Rage Against the Machine, where we were playing Sneaky D's and, like, Say What and Cameron House and the Spadina, the Cabana Room. And uh, I'm trying to think of other ones that were like that that are now long gone. But so so anyway, I was seeing all kinds of weird stuff. And I decided to put out a compilation called Irrevocable Upgrade. Hmm. And Irrevocable Upgrade uh, was what Kevin Press, who was, I think, writing for Exclaim at the time or one of those rags, said, uh, it's like being invited to the coolest intergalactic party and, you know, having like a a drum jam. Because there was no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, it starts off with Michelle Breslin from Fifth Column um, using like a lo-fi cassette tape and a drum machine to do this kind of like girl punk sort of pastiche music concrete thing. And then we have like Ritesh Das from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble doing like an improvisational thing. Um, we have a band called Studenyats, who I think were from Oakville that mm-hmm. featured Richard Marcella, who years later became the music director for Tom Green's show. Oh, Charlie Roby, rest in peace, who gave me this absolutely transcendent um, kind of meditative piece at the end that featured um, this beautiful flute that he had recorded in in Rajasthan. So it was kind of just this representation of how diverse and rich the spectrum of creativity was in Canada at that time. Um, none of which was on major labels. <laughs> um, just can't just Toronto did not have a real record industry that was penetrating anywhere outside of itself at that time. There was no bare naked ladies. There was no Alanis Morissette. There was no moist. There was no treble charger. Imagine a time before all of that. Mm-hmm. There was no star making system. Mm-hmm. We had this one kind of monolithic battlegrounds, which was much music, but even much music, the stuff that they played and much music was fricking awesome at the time. Mm-hmm. But even the stuff that they played just sort of seemed to be handed down from Mount, Mount Olympus. Like there was no connection I felt like to the street and what was being shown on much music. Um, I think it was like parachute club and Luba and Northern Pikes and, Grapes of Wrath, um, Timbuk Three, you know that kind of stuff was what was playing on much music. But I'd never seen those bands on Queen Street. Hmm. So, another fun fact: there used to be a little speakeasy right behind Much Music, where all these amazing musicians would go and play. Like I one time saw Carlos Del Junco, like world champion harmonica player, do a jam with Jeff Martin. Hmm. I think they were doing like an an impromptu Neil Young cover of like down by the river and the place was just crawling with like industry and everybody was totally shit face drunk and it was amazing. But I was like, Whoa, I really am like inside the inside. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the label, you know, was designed to kind of capture the spirit of that, like the zeitgeist. And I, I think the way I released that compilation, which was supposed to be the first in a series, was every artist basically put in like 500 bucks to master it, which was really expensive at the time, and then produce, you know, a thousand copies of it. So in exchange, they got like 50 copies of the CDs and it was just sort of this like commonwealth thing that we did to be able to release a record at any sort of scale that would matter. Hmm. And then shortly after that, within a year, we released our second album called Anxiety of Influence, A Nodding Into, which we had been working on for like two years. Um, and then a guy named Jean-Pierre Leduc came and saw us play at the ultrasound show bar where we had made our new home. And he offered to sign us to Distribution Fusion 3 out of Montreal, which I had no idea about. I, I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that Distribution Fusion 3 was going to put us into the record stores. And they did, and they did really well. But the other thing about them that was cool was he would send me boxes of CDs from their catalog that were the coolest freaking CDs on the planet. I'm talking like esoteric, crazy punk, just this really, really way cooler subset of, of releases that were coming out at the time. And all of that was like informing how I wanted to curate the releases that we did on our label. Actually, one more follow-up from a story. There's a lot to digest in that Nev Campbell story, so I got to go back one more time. Did you uh, get to meet Drew Barrymore and did you win the bet? Oh my God, yes. So, <laughs> okay, so I was on a balcony at in Etobicoke with the band and I think the bet was whoever, what was the bet? It was either like whoever brings a rock of crack. We didn't smoke crack. We didn't do any <laughs> of those drugs. But whoever brings a rock of crack or meets Drew Barrymore first will win a Johnny Camden action figure. I know. So I was like, I'm going to meet Drew Barrymore before you bring a rock of crack. <laughs> um, and so I went. <laughs> so I fly. Oh, God. How did this story even go? I fly to... San Francisco from Chicago tracks and I get into I think a limo there was no such thing as uber uh, I get into a limo probably coming via her from set or a driver or something and they drive me to Santa Rosa into a place called the valley of the moon now I'm in at midnight right so it's pitch black outside and all we know is that when we get to the llama tied to the tree, make a left. <laughs> so we turn left at the llama in the valley of the moon in the thick of night. And all of a sudden, the whole back of the horizon is like lit up by these 10K lights in the pitch blackness. And I'm like, well, that must be set. <laughs> so we drive over there and they're shooting the opening sequence of what would become Scream where Drew gets eviscerated and hung up in the tree with her guts hanging out. And I get there and I can see her body hanging from the tree. <laughs> um, but she's in her trailer covered in <laughs> sticky blood. 
and we go to the door. Nev goes, do you want to meet Drew? And I was like, yes, I want to meet Drew. <laughs> so we go to the door. I, at this point, have like, you know, Ronald McDonald red hair, this big nose ring, uh, <laughs> lots of mascara probably or eyeliner or something, whatever. And then, I, you know, it was the grunge days. And so she opens the door and, I, and she's like not fully dressed. She's just kind of covered in blood in a bathrobe. And she's like, oh, hey, come on in. <laughs> And I'm, of course, totally trying to be modest. And she's like, oh, man, we need more people like you in L.A. I, she's obviously referring to my look. <laughs> and she's like, it's so great to meet you. She's the sweetest person. Now, fun fact about that, that's about all the exchange that we had. Five years later, when I'm at Air One, the grocery store in L.A., she's in front of me in line. And she turns around. She goes, Karam. No way. And I'm like, what? How does this girl remember my name? She goes, isn't it your birthday like next week? What? She's insane. Like That's she amazing. is some sort of savant. Anyway, yeah, she remembered both my name and my birthday. Wow. Five years later from like a brief 10 minute exchange. <laughs> um, and I do, I'll also add to that story where there was like a, a cast. I stayed on set with them for about two weeks. Oh, wow. There was a cast dinner. Um. And I got stuck beside the writer uh, who ended up telling me the story of how he had sold his own shoes to be able to make copies of the script because he was huh. so broke. Um, you know, Wes Craven is like sitting at the head of the table. Uh, there was even a conversation where Nev put my hat in the ring about possibly scoring the movie. Oh, wow. And that only matters because he ended up saying, sure, I mean, on Nev's recommendation, let's let's see what you can do. And he gave me a whole bunch of references to like look up, and they included um, Goretzky, Penderecki, um, Arvo Per, Berlioz, like these were the com composers he wanted me to reference. And I was like, whoa, now I know what like informs Wes Craven's musical influences. <laughs> And honestly, at that point, horror movies were not Scream. Like, Scream was the first really postmodern horror film. Yeah, subversive and all that, yeah. Where it's like self-reflecting on its mm -hmm. own tropes, right? And like after that- Was that Kevin Williams? Kevin Williams? Kevin Williams. Before he wrote Dawson's Creek. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was like, hey, that, like, that poor little writer guy that I had dinner with ended up being a pretty big deal. Good for him. <laughs> two other follow-up questions to some of the things that you've touched on post that story um first with ultrasound uh, you said it became your new home um can you maybe talk a little bit about yvonne matzel and uh, her influence on the 90s canadian music scene oh my god so there's like two eras right the first era was when we were doing the marquee to and this was kind of like the normal sort of escalation you go you start at the marquee or stratingers you go to the opera house and then you work your way over to like bluer street where you're doing lee's palace the blue moon saloon which is where the, the first time i saw headstones play was when they were playing in this tiny little closet sized bar called the blue moon <laughs> saloon um and beside lee's palace you had the brunswick house which is the first place i ever saw jeff buckley play um, and then you had Clinton's and I'm probably forgetting some of like the, the bluer places. And then you worked your way down to Queen Street where you would do the Rivoli, you would do the Cameron House, 
the horseshoe tavern, the legendary horseshoe tavern. That was to me like the big kahuna. Like you played the horseshoe, you were the minted yeah. de facto Queen Street band. <laughs> um, and then there was the ultrasound that was just down the street. And the ultrasound was like a portal to another dimension. <laughs> you know, if like the horseshoe was like the castle in the land of Oz for Queen Street, the ultrasound was like the gateway to America. Um, Yvonne, who curated it, had impeccable taste and she was deeply prescient about what was coming. I mean, the ultrasound is where I first saw Kathleen Yearwood play. Um, I saw Rev. I saw a band called NC-17 that would later become Trouble Charger. Mm. I mean, it just goes on. I mean, the Rio Statics would do like full weekends there. Mm -hmm. um, watching Rio's play Claire... <laughs> was just at the ultrasound was like the most pinnacle experience.
so I just needed to be there. And I was so blessed that eventually Yvonne paid attention to us. I don't know how. I think it might have been we might have opened for somebody or she might have scouted us out at least. I don't know. But but she she became like she has to so many people, our fairy godmother, although she'd kill me for calling her godmother. <laughs> Um, and she, you know, would let us do like whole resident weekends there. And so we would do a takeover like sat Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In fact, one of our weekends was called the first night was called, um, the disintegration of the industrious motive from the human psyche. And then the second night was called the systematic slaughter of the middle class. <laughs> Is that you coming up with those titles or her? It was me. It was me. Nice. <laughs> it was me and my friend Scott Montgomery, who later kind of became a conciliary to to Kevin Drew as well. Um, <laughs> or he was, let's just say, a very close friend of the band's. Um, Chris Black, who wrote for iMagazine, didn't know what to make of us. He sort of half loathed me for trying to have this pretentious kind of philosophical bent on everything and and on the other hand he kind of just thought it was hilarious that there was a band on queen street that was digging into that material <laughs> um but on top of that we would sort of like we were hanging issues of the economist from the ceiling and lighting them on fire and we had um we would bring in like box springs from mattresses and like line the walls and then run auctions for absurdist art and it was just all kinds of shenanigans and Yvonne let us just do whatever. She loved it um, because we packed the place. Uh, and and that was because we were building on, you know, six hard years of pounding the pavement and then shoving them into this tiny little club. I knew better than to try to play much bigger venues where there would be holes in the, you know, in the floor plan. Hmm. So we we always tried to keep it really intense and really tight and 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 small. Um Instead of like trying to do the larger shows, we love that kind of intense upfront in your face intimacy. Uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into um, the themes of your shows and the theatricality involved in them. Because in my research, I found that you had a devoted group of fans called the Sky Pirates, where they were coordinated and uh, dress according to the theme of the show. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like organizing that and feeding off them and them feeding off of you? Yeah, I think something that's really important to point out is that there was no social media then. There was no internet per se. Like the only internet there was, I think by that point I was living, um, well, first of all, the Sky Pirates kind of grew out of that important cross section between Etobicoke School of the Arts kids who were like the art school kids. Um, you know, they were theater lighting designers and they were uh, musicians and they were punks and they were hippies. And then you had like the Degrassi kids who were like these precocious, you know, um, downtown kids that were kind of like working totally underpaid non-union on this show that was blowing up everywhere. And you mixed all that together into this cauldron and you get a culture of its own, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, you develop kind of like rituals and, and inside jokes and, and you reject the sort of power money mongering 80s excess and you reject um all of the sort of weird expectations and doctrines that you're being handed to to grow up and go to college and get a normal job and all of that sort of disfranchisement that was happening for the latchkey kids of the early 90s who'd been kind of left by their parents to sit at home eat you know fruit loops and watch three's company 
and have microwave dinners. And we were like, fuck this. There's way more to life than this. So it was kind of just this um, like battle cry. I mean, there was a lot of gender fuckery going on as well in the sense that there was no other agenda than to say, you know, there is no, <clears throat> it's like the, the mixture of masculinity, like anima and animus and just sort of like breaking down those barriers. So I don't ever think of what we did as drag. I thought of the social impositions that said you need to wear a uniform or you need to dress like, you know, like this or like that as the drag. And we wanted to disrupt that. So for example, Danny would wear this like flannel, uh, you know, sweater with a, like a toque, you know, like a lumberjack look, but then he'd wear like a, a you know, waist to floor skirt hmm. just to kind of screw with your assumptions. And I would wear dresses and like hot pants and like dog training boots and pigtails. And I had, you know, wings and capes and just whatever we could to like disrupt the assumptions of what it was supposed to be. And it wasn't kiss. It wasn't like quite kiss. It was way more kind of glammy. It sort of leaned into it, but we didn't really have any particular agenda other than to just kind of upset your assumptions of what life or reality should be about. Um, and so sky pirates were really growing out of the group of inside core people that would always come to the shows. They'd come early. They'd help us decorate. They really got into this, the spirit of things. And then we'd invite them back to, you know, our after parties and just hang out all night long. And the kind of the tropes and the memes and the, <laughs> and you know, the gags and the ideas and the creativity would just f sort of perpetuate itself. And you'd look out and go, wow, there's kind of 25 more of them now. And now there's 50 of them and they all know how to dress for tonight's show. And they would inform us, you know, mm. they would, they would, it was just a constant feedback loop. Like the band was nothing without that audience. It wasn't an audience. It was like, it was like, it was a, a gang. It was a movement. Didn't uh, much music and other media establishments, uh, Reference it as a cult, almost cult. <laughs> yes, I think I think when we were featured on the new music, she said some call it a cult and others a culture, <laughs> because it really was like, again, you didn't have internet, right? So it was kind of like, where is, where is the pulse? Where's the movement? And and people were kind of sick of the slick, city TV everywhere driving that conversation. This was sort of like the counter movement to that. It was the counter movement to the elitism of like the labels and the club, the clubs that were like, you're not good enough or established enough to do this. So we said, frick it, we'll just make our own scene. We'll make our own audience. We'll play in our own venues. And Project Nine was like that too. This was a group of guys, I think half of them were from Ajax. I ended up living with them for a couple of years. Um, it was three brothers of Baha'i faith who were the most monstrous, punk funk band ever and they had a great drummer they had a great guitar player and they also did that they would just run their own shows in their own venues like we'd find a random warehouse somewhere on Ossington like you know down by the um the hospital there and they would just do like hip-hop rap funk punk nights they were just totally packed with people that were not from the Queen Street scene, like the cool people. But it wasn't like a, you know, outer suburbs thing. It was like an inner city thing. And that mix of stuff was 
just deeply energizing. It felt dangerous. It felt really edgy. Sometimes the only illumination in these underground clubs was like a single exposed bulb hanging from the ceiling. Everybody smoked cigarettes. Like it was just like a wall of smoke and it was hot. It was totally against fire code. Um, and it worked. There was never fights. There was never violence. You know, you just were living and breathing this kind of throbbing underground culture. You know, when you challenge certain people's assumptions about th certain things, they uh, kind of have a visceral reaction sometimes. So when they see a, a guy up there in, you know, half a lumberjack outfit and half a evening dress, yeah, uh, is there any kind of hostility towards from certain audience that you guys had to deal with at any kind of any part of your career? Yeah, that's a great question. You have all the great questions. So it wasn't when we were playing at on our home, you know, turf, mm -hmm. but when we would go on tour, uh, you'd start to get different kinds of looks, different kinds of reactions. Um, like we did a we did one tour that was along the corridor I mentioned before. It was like Toronto, Oshawa. You know, I, I might get things wrong geographically, but like mm -hmm. I think there was like Kingston, and then we were like at some point and we. We ended up in Ottawa. We were playing at the Pit in Ottawa. We played Zaphod, Beeblebrox. And sometimes, like, it was just a bunch of, you know, truckers at a stop, um, maybe a couple of just farmers, uh, whatever, just kind of looking over their shoulder at us. Um, you know, we played Love Sexy in Hoboken, New Jersey. And <laughs> they, it was such a weird audience, you know, the eight people that were there. It was weird in a completely different wavelength than the one we were on. Um, so you kind of sometimes would be like, yeah, it was probably not in the best neighborhood for their antics. Um, but no, it was never about that. Like in the early 90s, gender fuckery was way more okay. Like it, it just everybody it was just way more amorphous. Like we didn't have like a codification of all of that. You know, anybody could wear whatever they wanted anytime, any way. It didn't have any other meaning other than like, I just feel like dressing like this or like that, or everybody had piercings. Anybody had tattoos. You just grab, you just grabbed whatever you could from a thrift store and just wore it down the street. It was all designed to, to kind of just, say, I don't abide by whatever the establishment has to give me. Hmm. So I don't know, in a way it was, if, if we encountered that, it would be because we were encountering a very old world, you know, hmm. that, that wasn't in step with the times. Interesting. Uh, now I want to talk about anxiety of influence a little bit, but before we move on to that, um, you referenced Catwalk earlier. Was it difficult being in a real band and then being on a made-for-TV band, and how were you able to balance the two? Okay, so the, the quick story about Catwalk is I had been at the choir school for most of my young life, and then I had and had enough of it. Uh, 11th grade, I decided to make a move, and that was terrifying because I just felt like I had total Stockholm Syndrome. I was like, I can't leave this place. They'll kill me. <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I decided I had enough of the subway rides, you know, an hour and a half each way every day. Wow. Um, so I decided to go to a local school. And and all of a sudden I was like in this co-ed school and the kids were all cool and they could wear whatever they wanted. And, um, you know, you could take weird classes like theater arts and law. <laughs> and um, 
and I got an audition. I was, I think we had played Lee's Palace. Afterwards, I went to some speakeasy, maybe like on Tecumseh or something. I feel like I'm giving up terrible secrets, but it has been 30 years. <laughs> um, anyway, and I, you know, I, I probably had a ton of like makeup on my face still. I had probably green chip fingernails and, and, and my hair was tied with all kinds of toys and whatever. And my agent, <laughs> calls me and says, you have an audition uh, tomorrow to do a character who plays music. I was like, oh no, I, I've lost my voice. I'm totally exhausted. Like I might've been mildly hungover and I really shouldn't be doing any auditions. But there is this weird thing in the acting life. Um, it's not so much now, or it's, now it's completely kind of broken and disrupted, but back then, no matter what you were doing in your life or thought you were doing, when your agent called and said you had an audition, you dropped everything and you did that. And that was what you had to do. Because it was an existential threat. If you didn't do it, they would stop calling you or they would drop you, mm -hmm. which meant no more money. You have to find a new agent and you're basically floating through space with no parachute. Mm -hmm. um, actually, you don't wear parachutes in space, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Falling through the air with no parachute. So. I go in and there's like ballerinas. They're like stretching on the bar. There's like muscle builders. There's like opera singers. I have nothing prepared. I don't know what my lines are. I, I definitely don't have a voice at the time to sing anything. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, oh, this is the end. This is the end for me. <laughs> um, and I go into the room and, you know, they kind of looked at me semi aghast, semi bemused, like, Oh God, here's a hot mess. And just ask me a few questions, you know, and, and like, what are you up to? And what are you into? And I was like, uh, um, they said, do you dance? I said, I'll do a hip hop dance for you. So I just did some freaky hip hop <laughs> dance on the spot. Ridiculous. Um, and, and I, and then they asked me to sing and I sang a Terrence Trent Darby song acapella. Cause it was the only acapella song I could think of was, <laughs> was the, the Terrence Trent Darby song. And then that was that. And I left. And like two weeks later, they said they want to see you for to, to shoot like this demo in L.A. And I I remember realizing at that point that acting is not what you think it is. Um, in acting, you kind of have to get out of your own way because what they want to see is who you really are. Uh, and you might be representing a character, but you have to be yourself in the moment, in the life of that character. Right. And we hear that a lot, but we don't really know what that means. What it means is just Truly, you have to be a human as you only know how, as only you know how. And then undertake the situation that the character is in. Um, so they thought I was Johnny. Uh, I didn't even think I was Johnny. But I was 17. I was at Michael Power, thank God, because I was able to kind of leave school for half the day all the time and nobody really seemed to notice. <laughs> um, and go and work on this show, Catwalk. Uh, in meantime, Blue Dog Picked at that point was kind of cresting. It was like kind of becoming its best version of itself. We were now playing regularly Saturday nights at all the major clubs on Queen Street. And we had friendships in the record industry and the scouts would kind of come around. They were never signing us because we didn't write three minute songs. They, mm -hmm. they didn't know what to do with this freaky, wild, you know, uncontrollable thing that we were offering and in fact a lot of them unfairly but maybe fairly thought that 
we were just an act. We were just a gimmick, you know, just mm. those, those, those crazy weird guys that just dress in freaky stuff and have puppets and this weird cult around them. But I will say Blue Dog Picked at that point was rehearsing eight hours a day, six days wow. a week at Street Brothers down on Lakeshore, uh, which is the same recording studio as like some other like major bands were rehearsing in. And we did not mess around. Like we were, we were using Frank Zappa as like, the standard by which we wanted to play hmm. like super elaborate bending twisting orchestral arrangements of like switching from blues to jazz to punk to um you know bossa nova to like hardcore you know rap moments and it had to be super tight and nobody heard us anymore at that point because it all's it was all overshadowed by the kind of pageantry of it, I guess.
So going into the catwalk situation, I was like, oh, this is like half of the real band I have in real life. You know, this is this is boring and but the money was really good and I needed to pay for the record. And I think my mom was like, you know, if you do something commercial, then you'll have the money to do whatever you want. But if you don't do that and you don't have the money, then you're going to be stuck with what you can get. And I couldn't, I was so obsessed with Blue Dog Pick's success that, and, and also to succeed by our own merit and, and our own process that I went to do the, the acting gig and get the money so I could pay for it. And that's precisely what happened. And they wanted us to sign an exclusive deal with MCA to do like five records over seven years for Catwalk. And I was like, I can't do that. I have a band and I'm not going to leave my band to have a fake band with your show. And it was going to be a major deal breaker, but I held my ground. I literally was just ready to walk away. I said, I don't care if I don't do this show. Like the band is what matters to me. And so they, they took the bluff and they said, okay, fine. You don't have to sign the contract. So I said, cool, then I'll do it. And it's exactly what I said. So for 10 months, we shot 24 episodes of the show. And I uh, used that money to pay for Anxiety of Influence because we basically <laughs> rented the most expensive recording studio in the city at Sounds Interchange, where Rush was recording and Smashing Pumpkins were recording and you know <laughs> everybody was recording. Why? Because I wanted to be as good as you needed to be to get signed to a major record label in Canada. <laughs> Not understanding that that wasn't the reason they weren't signing us, but I thought, oh, you have to like have the best studio and the best engineer and the best artwork and the best concerts. And if we work really, really, really hard, then we will earn a record deal. So let me give you a weird footnote on that. This is a story we might've gotten to by other means, but it's kind of the perfect moment to give it. I was asked to go to a costume fitting at a place called, again, Exile on Queen Street. It was just a few steps away from much music. It had no like front wall or whatever. It was dark. <laughs> Very interesting people hung out there. This kind of, they were people that were really in the know, but they were not the front facing person. And they saw all the people that came through there and they knew what their dealings were with each other. All I can say is that that's what exile was kind of like. Hmm. Um, I loved going there for a martini. And so when they asked me to go to do a wardrobe fitting for a film called, well, it eventually was called Skin Deep. I said, let's go to exile. It's right on Queen Street. I'll already be there, whatever. So we go in and I'm doing a wardrobe fitting. I'm kind of feeling a little self-conscious because I'm like down in my underwear standing in the front window, you know, on Queen <laughs> Street. But then again, who cares? So this guy comes up to me and he's got this sort of like long brown mousy hair. And he goes, hey, man, I couldn't help but hear that you're in a band. You're talking to, you know, the costumer about being in a band and I'm in a band and I'm. I'm here from Vancouver and, you know, we're kind of looking to, to play some shows. If I give you this, you know, demo, will you listen to it? I was like, uh, sure. <laughs> now, I will say this. I was kind of intrigued because one thing I always did in booking Blue Dog Pick shows, and I attribute this to kind of part of the reason that we were doing, we were getting traction, was that I always tried to book really, really interesting opening bands. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not just whoever was around, but like if you were in from Europe, I wanted you to open for us or us to open for you so that we built this like scarcity model of a show. You know, it was like, oh, you have to go because this band will only be here once. The problem was on Queen Street, you always saw the exact same 15, 20, 30 bands like in a big loop just playing around the, the loop, right? And so anything that deviated from that was like, huh, everybody's suddenly paying attention. Like, what's this? Why is it here? So when this guy says to me, I'm here from Vancouver and we want to play and we're kind of maybe good, I said, huh, that could be an interesting little angle for our next show with the ultrasound. <laughs> I just found the cassette the other day. Um, it's a uh, blue and gold words on a black background, copyright 1993. Huh. Uh, okay, so the songs are Push, Believe Me, huh. See, Touch, Feel, Picture Elvis. Does any of this sound familiar? Yeah, it's ringing some bells, man. That's amazing. You ran into David Usher is the one who handed you David Usher is this guy who had this band from Vancouver <laughs> coming into town. And so I said, I called him. I said, okay, look, I, I don't even think I listened to the whole cassette, but it sounded competent. <laughs> and I said, look, we're playing um, two shows. We're playing at the Ultrasound, and then we're playing at the Horseshoe. Which one do you want? And he's like, well, can we do both? I was like, yeah, why don't we just like make it a double bill? You can <laughs> open one, and we'll open one, and... Whatever. Now, I remember when we played the Horseshoe show, there was like a bit of a, a, a tense West Side Story moment because there, our drummer, you know, we would very meticulously set up our kit and had it all mic'd up and everything. And then the other band would play on our kit. But they, they insisted that they had to play their own kit. And we're like, dude, we just spent like an hour and a half like setting everything <laughs> up. Came in here at four o'clock. You know, you can't just tear it down. And they're like, no, we have to play on our own thing. I'm like, D- you're opening for us. Like, it's not your <laughs> say in the matter what you get to do. And I remember like the managers and the bands were like facing off and there's like this whole thing. Huh. But in any case, what matters is that one of those two shows, I think it was EMI or MCA, somebody who had been kind of like coming to our shows for a while, just sort of keeping their ear to the ground, saw them and then signed them. And huh. thus Moist was eventually within a few months of that signed to, I don't know, EMI or MCA. Amazing. And what did you think of Moist uh, once you saw the live, once you saw the live uh, representation? Well, I thought they were boring. Hmm. I I just thought like, this is just like a standard, like college jock band. But I lived in my own world. I was uncompromising. I, I didn't care about anything except for like being unexpected you know i don't want to sound like a douchebag i just i just (laughs) didn't find it that interesting or compelling but i looked around me and what i did observe was whoa like everybody around me is getting lit up by whatever's going on on this stage Hmm. and all the industry people around me were like this is the thing now look you have to remember like an unproven band an unproven model you don't know how far it can go it's only when it's been validated by playing, you know, the stadium, you go, I always knew that that was going to be huge. Um, so, you know, it's only after the fact that you say, wow, I always knew that was going to be huge. Um, and when I saw them, I thought, yeah, it's fine. But but I think they I think they were a really good band and I think they worked really hard. I think the keyboards did something to kind of bring it into a different territory. Hmm. Um, I still don't get it, but I don't take away from their success. Well said. Um, 
Now, what did uh, the fellow Catwalk members think of the Bulldog Pact? Did they ever come see a, see a gig? I think Nev was the only one that really, really championed Blue Dog Pick. Like, she would come to all the shows. Huh. Maybe not all, but she came to a lot of the shows, and she was, like, right there in the middle of the madness and supporting mm-hmm. us. And she, if she would fly into town, like, years later, she'd come and see us play. So she huh. was always a really big supporter of mine. And I appreciated that. I just wanted to say, like, like she was always such a good, you know, friend in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One last question, as promised, about catwalk-ish stuff, and then uh, I want to get into uh, the anxiety record. The Johnny Campin hair, was that uh, purposefully like that to separate yourself from what you look like in Blue Dog Picked? Right. So I will assume that most people hearing this have not seen Catwalk. And so (laughs) on Catwalk, my character was memorable because he had this sort of weird burr cut shaved you know, the sides of his head and the back were totally shaved up to the top. And then he had kind of like an inward braid that was sort of his signature look. Um, and that was, I had really like long hair at that point And I would try to have like my Peter Parker look and my Superman look, uh, hmm. catwalk being my Peter Parker look. <laughs> uh, and and I needed to sort of different, you know, it, it was a problem with Blue Dog Pick because in all of the marketing and everything we did, I was always pulling back and not trying to promote myself as the lead singer because I was afraid that the catwalk people would come after me and say, you can't do that. Now, I doubt they would have, but there was definitely this always this kind of shadow over Blue Dog Picked where marketing, and I think that actually created part of that enigma was we had to instead use creative artwork and so on instead of like band photos. Mm. And if we did have band photos, I had like really weird makeup on like clown makeup or whatever, just to kind of hide my identity a bit. Mm. So yeah, the hair, the Johnny hair was basically me camouflaging myself from not looking like I did in blue dog picked. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's rule. Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Karen Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends, take care.